this is Mutant, and you're listening to Dialogues at the End of Democracy. In 2019, on a public stage in Hyderabad, India, Eshwari Kumar and I, Payal Puri, began a conversation about democracy that has in some sense never really ended. Mutant is that dialogue made for the first time public. When we first began speaking, we realized that Eshwari and I understand democracy somewhat similarly, both as an idea, a moral vision of the world, and as an action, a set of political commitments and practices that govern our relations to other living forms. As we spoke further, though, something else started to make itself apparent, which is that in large parts of the world, democracy and democratic practice have today mutated into something entirely unrecognizable. That was the genesis of mutant. And I think it's important here to pause and understand that this moment, the moment at which mutant is being created, is not just another moment in the long and often violent history of democracy. Rather, we believe that we are today, as Ishwari puts it, in the heart of the most classical autoimmune disorders within democracy. It is as if the world's most stable democracies were at war, but with themselves, to which their constitutions have no moral response and to which their majorities have nothing but collective indifference to offer. What is up with democracy? This, in a nutshell, is the question we are both posing as well as attempting to enter, if not answer. We're doing so at the intersection of thought and language. Words, we believe, and I think this is one of those shared beliefs that again animates this podcast. Words, we believe, are everything. Which is why the first step in deconstructing this catastrophic moment in democracy, it was clear to us, was to return to ourselves a vocabulary with which to do so. Mutant is that vocabulary. It is that language. Over the next 26 episodes, we will be building an alphabet of global political thought. Every episode will be devoted to one letter of the Roman alphabet, A through Z. And each letter, and therefore each episode, will be organized around two words, or just occasionally a word, beginning with that letter. The words that we cover in each episode are in a sense a dictionary of global political thought, as I said before, an inventory of 52 concepts and ideas that together express the power and the fragility of the democratic promise. Ashwari, before we come to that alphabet, to the words themselves that make up this inventory, I want to begin with the word that is in fact the underpinning of it all. Mutant. What to you is mutant? I think when we came to the idea of a dialogue that would pushed through the extreme limits, perhaps even the ends of democracy, we began with a concession. 
that what examining or what an examination of democracy must entail is a certain refusal of stasis. Mutant as word and as concept, for us, I believe, from the very early stages of of our coming together for this dialogue, um, mutant was the resistance to that false sense of certainty that the mere mention of democracy sometimes generates in people. Uh, for for me, uh, really, if you ask even more precisely, mutant was a way to move beyond certain sorts of timeless claims about what democratic self-government means. Uh, it was a refusal to concede that the ideological core of democracy had already been set forever and that therefore all we needed to now do was to find a perfect form of democracy. Instead, what we really needed to ask and what I think we will be doing what we want to be doing is wander together and travel together into this very idea of false certainty that democracy sometimes generates in the modern world. It is somehow assumed that a perfect form of self-government has been found, that its ideological core has already been secured, that the rights it promises have already been guaranteed and that any deviation from it should be enough to generate apocalyptic pronouncements about the death of democracy. Mutant is the rejection of both that false certainty that democracy can generate and the apocalyptic tremors that it sometimes seems to unleash. Mutant is a refusal of the idea that democracy has an ideological core that is immovable. At the same time, mutant is a concession to the idea that nothing in democracy is impenetrable by violence and by evil, and that democracy and evil can sometimes not only survive together or rather coexist together, they might even nourish each other. Mutant is the declaration of that possibility staring us today in our face. Ishwari, why language though? I, I mean, like for every possible entry point into democracy that there could have been, why have we chosen words as our moral and political starting point to examine this mutant that democracy might be? At the very heart of what we can call um, uh, the risk of democracy and what we have actually uh, called the risk of democracy is a certain form of demise, if not death, of meaning. Uh, in the end, democracy is possible or becomes possible and comes into the world as a shared belief 
in something that is more meaningful and more powerful than a collective of individual interests. This is why democracy is first and foremost a shared and collective promise of a better world and of a world that, if not entirely just, is somehow constituted by our collective effort to create a world of least injustice. Democracy is not our ride into perfection. Democracy is our experiments with disappointment. And these two elements of democracy can be understood only and in their fullness when we realize that so much of what we promise to each other, to one another, is in the end a question of words. How we speak to one another, how we make promises to one another. The very, uh, as uh, Hannah Arendt would say, the very promise of politics is the gravity of our words. Or rather, it is the gravity of our words that holds together the promise of our politics and therefore our very future. Uh, when we got together, I think this was something on our minds. I, I know, uh, and I think our listeners should know, that uh, well after I had crafted the expression, the risk of democracy, um, it was for the first time in our conversation, and it was for the first time you in that conversation who had first who had posed the question of what was risky about it, and what was risky back then had not fully shown itself or shown its own hand to me, even though I had articulated it as such. And it seemed to me that the greatest risk to democracy is a certain form of. Um, free fall of off and in our language. So these 26 words through which we try to take um, try to try to travel into democracy as it were or undertake a travel into democracy are in some ways are, are uh, reflect our attempt to bring a certain sort of gravity of our promises. Uh, that we make to each other and one another. Democracy is unthinkable without this gravity, without this commitment to meaning. Because one thing democracy is not is cheap nihilism. The ability, the cultivated ability, but also the willingness to believe in nothing. That's not democracy. Coming to this inventory, it has taken months, maybe longer, to isolate the words that can carry the sprawl, but also the intensity and the gravity that we need for this dialogue about democracy. I mean, let's be clear, this is both an ambitious and an audacious attempt to isolate 52 words that can, in a sense contain everything we think needs saying or thinking about democracy in our time. For you, what 
Ishwari, does this inventory accomplish? And, and for a listener who comes on this 26th episode ride with us, what will they understand both about these concepts themselves, but also about democracy as such? Well, the first and the form, perhaps the first and the last, we should say, um, promise we make uh, to anyone who can troll through these uh, these words with us as we hope to troll um, is that there is some virtue despite everything there is some virtue in the idea that we say no to unjust power and pose our faith in our capacity to rule ourselves, to govern ourselves. It can at times seem pretty obvious. It can at times seem pretty uh, unnecessary to remind ourselves that it's a great idea that a society or a collective or a people decides that it must rule over itself, thus the word democracy. But more often than not, democracy has existed as an exception rather than as a rule. Uh, for the most part, it was never self-evident. In, in large parts of human history, it was never self-evident that democracy is the best form of government. And there's only a certain point in history at which we realize that self-rule is the best form of rule. So in some ways, this is a reminder of that common sense. What these words will do, let us hope, is restore to democracy a certain immovable power of our common sense. This is not a grand philosophical idea that we are chasing. This is a travel into ordinary language because words in the end can heal, words in the end can wound, words can restore, but words can also destroy. And there is therefore a certain sort of a relationship between democracy and the word. A certain sort of relationship between democracy and the words we use in a democracy. Because that relationship is where language becomes rhetoric and where words become weapons. Um, what we hope we can do over the next 52 um, word archaeology, as it were, an excavation of these words, um, is, to, is to restore commonsensical understandings of words that do not refuse the power that these words have to both heal and wound. I also hope that the way we have chosen these words will make it 
clear, known, palpable, perhaps even visceral, that these words now matter more than ever to our democratic future. That words, whether they are figures or notions or ideas or concepts, sometimes even names of thinkers, that they somehow carry in themselves much, much more than the sum total of their individual meanings even. And that is what we mean by the power of common sense. Our collective, our shared, our unequal, but our always committed conceptions of what words can do. So there's two dimensions I briefly want to touch on here, just you know, to take off from what you're saying before I come to a question itself. For me, when we first started speaking about words, what was startling um, as someone who has worked with language through different iterations of my professional life was the rather rude, the um, I would say brutally rude awakening to my own just careless uh, you know, often easy abuse of language, right? And the process of isolating words for mutant, the process of entering their skins, the process of actually pausing at individual words and, and debating and, um, you know, um, just spending time on individual words that we have been through in the last few months. And that has come for me to be a central intent of mutant is that if you can return gravity, I've come to believe to even one word, I think it changes how you view all words. The second dimension of this that has been extremely powerful for me is the realization that our real crisis of language actually occurs in the realm of the everyday word. You know, words we think we all understand, uh, words that are so just common that we lose sight of the fact that no two among us might actually mean the same thing when we use the same word. But, but even more than that, I think that the very ubiquity of a word might mean that we actually don't have a clear grasp of what it means at all. And the word that leaps to mind for me here, right, is, is arguably the most commonplace word used in a democracy, which is democracy. I know today is not meant, you know, this episode is not meant to be an excavation of or a deconstruction of a word in particular, but I do think it would be a misstep to enter a larger inventory of words without first arriving at a shared understanding or just laying out a shared landscape of the word democracy. So if I were to ask you, Ashwari, what is democracy? What would you say? I mean, this, this would sound highly tautological, but let me put that nonetheless. Democracy, as we were saying, is not, is not a thing that we can grasp 
or hold in our hands or even capture in a mere sum of words. This is why, to return to the, to, to the beginnings of, uh, of your formulations, this is why democracy is best described as a mutant, right? So when you ask me, what is democracy? I'm immediately tempted to answer, democracy is a mutant, right? Democracy is both a promise and a disappointment. Democracy is both a destination and a very checkered ride. Democracy is both a very serious art of government. Democracy at the same time is the ability and the right to be humorous and have humor about that government. Democracy is to take our government seriously. Democracy is the ability to make fun of our seriousness, of how seriously we take government. Democracy can be many things. Uh, this, is the, this is what the inventory does for me when, when we started thinking about it, is that it allows us different points of breaches rather than an examination of certain foundational or even normative presuppositions or assumptions about what democracy could or ought to look like. Democracy can be many things, and there's nothing normative about it. What, it, what makes democracy so powerful in our imagination is simply the fact that somewhere it gives everyone the space to be who they are. In effect, therefore, to take my answer at your question to the level of moral psychology, I would in fact say that democracy is first and foremost our right to choose who we are. In other words, democracy is the freedom of choosing identities. It is a certain sort of a moral landscape where one can be anything one wants to be. In other words, to be more philosophical about it or more conceptual about it, democracy is our experiment in shared freedom. The ability to and the right to be who we are. It is also therefore our right to make that which is invisible, visible. This is why, as we will say when we return or when we pick up the letters under, uh, the words under the letter C, we'll say, we will see, and I hope we will make it amply clear why democracy cannot survive in the shadows of something that is invisible. And one of those invisible things is caste, which does not exist. We are told. Among the thinkers you speak of or return to most frequently is Hannah Arendt. And there is a formulation of Arendt's that uh, I have heard you use over and over that speaks very powerfully to 
what we are entering and that is the right to have rights and is democracy also the right to have rights or what is the relation between democracy and that formulation that's a that's a brilliant um entry into this inventory for for one basic reason which is um which is the sheer irony of it the woman who refuses to call herself or be called a philosopher because philosophy is what men do a woman so attuned and aware to the fragility of human freedom a woman so committed to examining what could be the most durable forms of political freedom somehow coins an expression so powerful we cannot stop using it uh the right to have rights is also a thinker who rarely ever poses faith in democracy what is striking about arendt is how infrequent if at all her use of the word democracy in her political thought is she will uh, at times um use expressions more colloquial in fact more colloquial expressions or identities to to attribute to people she uses words like conservatives she uses uh notions such as liberals or liberalism but she will rarely ever use the word democrat or democracy and i think that irony is 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 a brilliant entry into the fragile and the tricky word world of words that we are entering right for one uh, uh it seems like arens belief in the right to have rights does not necessitate our commitment to democracy at all and 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 therefore we need to ask whether democracy is, democracy is something more than a mere sum of our rights is aren't suggesting something more to the right to have rights than 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 mere democratic survival or democratic coexistence even and that's where i think it becomes important for me to understand that there is something more at the heart of our struggles with political and moral life than mere democracy this is also why i believe that um that the talk of the demise or death of democracy is slightly overblown because what is it that we really want a world of rights or a world of electoral majorities that always risk taking democracy away from its founding principle right um this is also a way perhaps where we can um share with everyone why we we asked that question when we when you raised it in the first conversation we ever had 3 years over 3 years ago about the risk of democracy and the greatest risk of democracy is that electoral majorities political majorities in democratic societies start to take their liberty as their license and that slippage between liberty and license 
is the catastrophic risk at the heart of our commitment to democracy. So um, you just said, and um, it's interesting because uh, when we say, and you just said that, that claims of the end of democracy, um, they're often gleeful claims about the end of democracy or claims of the end of democracy are overblown. And we have chosen yet to, to title our, our dialogue, not only as mutant, but dialogues at the end of democracy. And I want to get at what you see at the end of democracy, because you have a phrase and a word and also uh, the title of your upcoming book, which is, um, this is not a closure, this is a mutation. So what comes next? Yeah, fascinating. I, 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 I love that, that formula, uh, that it's not a closure, but a, uh, but a mutation. Uh, the, the idea that we are we are um, coming together for a dialogue at the end of democracy um, is also an idea in something else, which is we are coming to this dialogue about the ends of democracy. That is to say, what is it that democracy is good for? Or as you were saying early on um, in, the, in the opening uh, minutes of this show, what is up with democracy? And what is up with democracy is clearly not its death or its end, but the reformulation and the absolute recalibration, perhaps even to the point of its defacement, the ends of democracy. What is it that we want to accomplish uh, by being democratic? And it has undergone such a radical shift over the last quarter of a century, in fact, 30 years, if you look at the world's most populous liberal democracy, which is India, I call it India's 30 years war uh, between 1992 and 2022, which begins with the, with the demolition of this mosque in northern India. Um, and there is something very, very, um, I would say, tragic that occurs in 92. The tragedy is not that a 16th century mosque is demolished uh, by um, a highly well-trained, regimented band of paramilitary uh, personnel, because I can't think of another word um, for, for these very trained and, and motivated fanatics. The tragedy was not simply the demolition. The tragedy was the extremely curated wave and surge of urban indifference that follows that crime. Uh, the Thirty Years' War um, in our own religious history has been somehow framed as a crisis of our secularism when actually this is not simply a crisis of secularism, this is a crisis of our moral compact to be human, let alone to be constitutionalists. It is banal as a claim to say that we are all constitutionalists. We are not. For one, we all don't understand the constitution and its intricacies. 
But it's precisely that swath of India's urban population that might have understood what was at stake in our constitutional compact that meets this horrendous crime, a crime both against an, the, the national past and, the, and its future, a crime both against our deep, uh, rich history um, of remains, of archaeological remains, and our profoundly liberating histories of, um, of architectures, right? It's precisely those swaths of the population that meet this crime with indifference, which opens a whole new abyss in what is always in a democracy supposed to be a very firm line between what is judicial and what is extrajudicial. I think what happens uh, in the last 30 years is that that line between what is judicial and extrajudicial, what is constitutional and what is anti-constitutional, what is political and what is anti-political, what is moral and above all what is evil, those lines are completely blurred, possibly forever. Mutant tries to go back to the most primary and primal scenes of that blurring in the history of our democratic consciousness. Is, um, is that moment 30 years ago the beginning of what you now call the neo-democratic moment or the neo-democratic condition. Is it, um, was that the beginning of this mutation in democracy as such? Or was that the beginning of this in the cycle of Indian democracy? And I also pose this question because we record mutant from two ends of the earth. We record mutant from, in your case, the heart of the world's oldest democracy, in my case, from the heart of the world's largest. Both that seem to be undergoing a very singular transformation. And I, I think a lot of what we, what we speak of when we speak of the threats to democracy or the this mutation of democracy is actually housed in events that happen either in in the United States or in India because between the two they offer two seeming success stories um, of our experiments with democracy and so this mutation in either or both parts of the world seems to spell something much bigger than itself so to return to the to the to the question 30 years ago was that the moment you think the transformation in democracy at such as such began or was that a moment only for india i would say both but i would say if i was compelled to choose one i would say the first democracy as such morphs or begins to morph into something that will forever change the sort of politics that we associate with modern democratic forms or modern political forms that are democratic in character uh, or in theory. 
if not entirely in practice. Both because, uh, of course, in India, which is the world's largest, most populous democracy, um, for the first time it becomes clear that no matter what the ruling dispensation, no matter who is in power, it is often very, very easy for the majority to get away with a crime that is unpunishable. Uh, and you brought up Hannah Arendt, it reminds me of that f- staggeringly effective formula she has uh, in her essay on um, some questions of moral philosophy where she says, and whatever is unpunishable is permitted. Right. Part of the risk of democracy and what we've called the neo-democratic condition or, or neo-democratic dysfunction is that anything that the majority now seems to believe it can get away with, it also starts to believe it is permitted to commit. And once something like that crime is committed and is led to pass, we know that the case against the primary accused in the Barbary demolition lasted over two decades and ended with the acquittal of every single person accused of inciting that crime. Um, What is fascinating for me in this farce is that over a period of time, some of the frontline figures then become the icons of majoritarian political identity. Which tells us something about what majorities or majoritarian rule can be when given not an anti, but a highly intensified democratic mandate. And that is the risk uh, that begins in India. But the fact is that this was not only true of India, even at this particular and very specific moment. right? Uh, more importantly, I believe that whatever happens to democracy in India happens to democracy anywhere. There's a reason why uh, a, a blatantly, frankly racist president of the United States can be hosted by an army of diasporic Indians who formed the fiscal backbone of the modern Hindu right. There is a certain sort of what I like to call a global majoritarian coalition whose rage is fueled not by the fact that it has been disenfranchised by globalization, its rage is fueled by the fact that it has benefited the most from it. And that's the paradox we need to unpack. We need to be very, very careful and wary of narratives that suggest that the current age is an age of anger and that those who are angry are angry because they have been left behind in the modern and epic story of globalization. You look at paramilitary forms 
of politics, of mass politics that have begun to thrive in places as diverse as Hungary, India, United States, and as recently as this month in Italy, you realize that this is not a coalition of people left behind. It's a coalition of profiteers, oligarchs, and financiers of the modern electoral system worldwide. Your choice of word very neatly and almost uh, fortuitously will probably lead us straight into our first episode, um, which begins with the letter A. But before we wind this down, there is another formulation that I think is, um, which we referred to earlier, right at the beginning of this episode, in passing, which I think is a formulation of Jacques Derrida that you also, um, that you, you speak of. And I'd like you to explain what we mean by this, because you've, you've touched upon it as you, as you decode certain concepts. But to say that democracy has an autoimmune condition Right is um, is both just frankly it blows my mind as a formulation right one because it posits that there is a diseased self in democracy at at its very inception right and that in a sense uh, that democracy is a permanent act of trying and never there is nothing beyond the trying there is no arriving in democracy right? um, democracy yet to come as you say following Derrida following Derrida yes what is democracy's autoimmune condition yeah I, I and and I, I think I think you hit it right on the head De- democracy's autoimmune condition is uh, not simply um, its propensity to hurt itself. That is a, a system of government and of constitutional checks and balances that hurts itself. That is pretty obvious. All regimes have in some uh, have some measure of self-destructiveness built into it. But what is fascinating about democracy's autoimmune disorder is that it touches not simply a system of government, but the very idea of the human. And therefore, uh, the use of the word autoimmune as a very, very evocative, visceral, almost biologistic metaphor, although although we need to be very, very suspicious of all claims of biologism, uh, it, it has to be taken very seriously because you don't, you don't, um, in a democracy, hurt simply a government, right? When you, when you attack yourself, you hurt your neighbor. And that is what is autoimmune about democracy, that it is when given a free fall or when it loses all sense of gravity, um, democracy can become extremely suicidal to the point of self-destruction. 
this is why something like uh, as we will eventually say uh, I, and I hope we will say that sooner rather than later uh, that in democracy what is most violent is not the spilling of blood but by a collective neglect of the most vulnerable our ability to be democratic is not in that sense incompatible with our ability to be disdainfully indifferent to one another and that is the new democratic condition we are faced with today that negligence and neglect have come to not only coexist but thrive with a certain grandiosity uh, and exaggerated professions of being democratic we are a democ we are a democracy in a very civilizational way as if democracy was born in the united states or or in india or in england it was certainly not born in england but let's say you know countries love to claim that uh but that that claim making is rooted in a sort of neglect that seems to make no dent in the hubris we have come to live in and live with we'll stop right here episode 0 was is a freewheeling introduction of sorts to the concept the structure and the framework of this dialogue still to come as well as the preoccupations out of which it was born next week we begin with the letter a and with two words that to me are a visceral embodiment of everything mutant is about you touched ashwari on one of those words earlier anger and i think anger exemplifies how dangerous a word can be when it attaches to the wrong constituency we'll talk more about that about what misunderstanding and therefore misusing a word like anger can do to imperil or to destroy a democracy alongside that a word that immediately evokes one of the most singular thinkers the world has ever known and one of the most obdurate questions one of the most obdurate crimes you would say to dog democracy that question is caste the thinker is b r ambedkar and the word is annihilation on that note see you next week